Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back. Today I am welcoming back to the podcast my dear friend and one of your favorite guests, Dr. Christine Cocciola. And this was sort of an unscripted conversation that we had. We didn't really have a lot of a plan for this conversation. We just knew that we wanted to cover uh, a bunch more topics for the podcast. So we just hit record and went to town. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Christine Cocciola as much as I enjoy talking to her all the time. <laughs> um, and just another quick shameless plug that I uh, have some spots open for Grit and Grace and that I would love to talk to you. You can set up a consultation uh, uh, in the show notes on my website and it's kateanthony.com. And then you can just click on Grit and Grace in the uh, navigation tab. And uh, you can set up a consultation and you and I will have a, you know, 20 to 30 minute chat and see if the program is right for you. It is right for so many of you. If you are struggling to decide whether to stay or go, if you are going through a divorce, if you are dealing with domestic violence, if you are dealing with coercive control, if you are in any way struggling through something high conflict and you need support, trust me, there is somebody in the group that is experiencing exactly what you are right now. And the community is such a beautiful thing. So kateanthony.com slash coaching, I believe. Um, just click on the grit and grace tab and set up a consultation with me and we'll make sure that you are a great fit for grit and grace. And now without further ado, here is my conversation with my dear friend, Dr. Christine Cocciola. Christine, thank you so much for coming back on. Uh, and just full disclosure to everyone, we're not a hundred percent sure what we're going to talk about. <laughs> We've been brainstorming all of the ideas, um, but we finally just decided to hit record and see where this conversation takes us. Thank you for having me. As always, I adore you. Um, okay. So we're, t I mean, we are talking about coercive control. Your handle on all the things is coercive control is IPV. And for those who don't know, IPV is intimate partner violence, sometimes called domestic violence, sometimes called domestic abuse. Pick your, pick your word. Um, but that's sort of actually part of what we're talking about here, right? Is like everyone has different names for things. And it's kind of important that we get on the same page so that we don't distill our message or confuse people. Right? Perfect. Perfect. 
Mm-hmm. So coercive control. So coercive control, the foundation of all types of abuses that occur in intimate relationships and really that occur outside of intimate relationships. That's the reality. This could happen at your work. It can happen in micro system. We call it micro systems. It can happen in intimate relationships. It can happen in meso systems. That's like in schools, in your workplace, in community agencies, in courts, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll criminal, get to that. Just, criminal justice <laughs> system. And certainly it can happen in macro systems. It can happen by governments. This is, you know, I mean, seriously, think about governments, you know, that have had rulers in place, right? Mm-hmm. That have wanted to <laughs> coercively control people. Or right. the entire or the entire system of government or there we the go. entire country. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So we don't shy away from politics on my, on my show, uh, Christine. So don't worry. (laughs) I know. I know. So, I mean, you know, the concept came out of intimate terrorism and what happens to POWs in war and how they would break down and actually give in to their oppressors. So it's this coercion that happens, but it's really often insidious. It's often non-physical, at least initially. And in intimate relationships, what we have to recognize is that even if you don't know you're living in it, it is a type of intimate terrorism because you are stripped of your autonomy. You are so stripped down to nothing without even recognizing it, by the way, which is just always so interesting, right? You you don't know what's going on until after you're out. And then when you're That's out, right. you're like, shit, that was really right. effed up. Yes. Yes. That was me. <laughs> that was me. Wait, wait, what mm-hmm. happened? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So the stripping away of who we are and, you know, I mean, and so again, on this micro level and in intimate relationships, and we know it happens everywhere, but this idea that I lose, I really lose my sense of self. And it's not because by the way, I have low self-esteem. It's, no. it's, it could be, you know, that's the thing about this. We know these perpetrators are actually oftentimes attracted to people who have really great sense of self in work or in family or wherever, because that's an attraction. That's a strength for these people who deep down inside are so weak, so vulnerable, so filled with shame that they need that that victim as an object to help them feel good. Mm-hmm. So, Um, So I would say to the listeners, if we could just make it really succinct, most domestic violence, abuse, it doesn't always have to be physically violent. It can be violent, as you always say, in other ways, right? Psychological Mm -hmm. abuse can certainly feel violent. Most most domestic abuse is based on this power and control. Right. Most, when we hear about a victim being hurt or murdered or whatever it is, when someone's murdered, it's based on power and control. That's the reality. And that's most domestic violence. So poo-poo to anybody who says, oh, they were just fighting. That's bullshit. Very few cases are two people or one person who may be in a moment of rage and perhaps drinking or drugs hit someone and then never does it again. That's situational. That's very, very different than what we're talking about. Yeah. And that's rare. Very rare. 
because it's what we've used as our lens historically. That's the problem. That's yeah. the lens that the family court looks through. That's the lens that criminal court looks through. These are the lenses they use. They say, oh, he did it once. We'll put him, we'll do reform on him. We'll get him help. We, he'll get therapy. He'll do all these things. He will get better. I call BS. Most of these perpetrators do not get better. That's right. They escalate. They escalate over time. And I mean, listen, I, this is a, this is a, this is a hard conversation to have, but I do want to have it. I want to touch on it. Um, all of recently, there have been a lot of murders that have um, been in the news. Now, I don't think that there are any more murders <laughs> than there, you know, have been in the past, but at least we're talking about them. And these, some of these are shocking. Well, they're all shocking, to be honest. Um, and you know, we're, we're, we were talking about the case in Utah where mm -hmm. the father murdered the, his entire family. How many, there were six of them. Uh, six four, altogether. Six yes. altogether, four kids, five kids and the wife, or. I thought it was five people. Oh, maybe you're right. It was five oh. children. It was five children. I thought. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the mom mm -hmm. and in his obituary. They talked about what an amazing dad he was and how he would go to the ends of the earth for his children. Now, this is a man who had had a domestic violence call out against him in the past that was probably brushed off the way that you're talking about, right? Right, right. And he, so here's what I think is so important for people to recognize is that people can, people who have this pathology are actors on stage. Mm -hmm. and, and they act the part so well yeah. most of the time that they even trick, fool those of us so close to them, those of us who should know them so, so well. So, so imagine if you don't know this person well and you just see them at the soccer game, at the soccer field, or you see right. them. Yes, school, right. He's, he's a great event. dad. Oh, he's a great dad. He's a great dad. Well, those children were only fulfilling a need for him because, well, for obvious reasons, he's so very sick, right? And um, so these are not good parents ever. And the fact that the news actually highlighted that he was a wonderful dad is just really distressing really distressing because the story was really about who was murdered. The story was really about who lost their lives, those innocent children and their mother. Right. And that's not the story they've been telling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I sort of want to go into a little bit about, you know, as I said, one of my, one of my goals, certainly with this podcast um, and in my work is to create an army of activists. I want everyone who listens to this podcast to be so educated about this stuff that they can go out and advocate for themselves in court, that they can advocate for their friends, they can steer their friends in the direction of getting help or understanding and recognizing coercive control. And I'm just, I don't know. Um, how do we do that? How do we do that when, you know, I say like, I want them to be able to go into court and like tell the judge, but it's not illegal. Coercive control is not illegal. 
even though it is the foundation of all domestic violence. Mm -hmm. So what do we do? Fix it, please, Christine. (laughs) (laughs) We keep talking about it and we, we ask people to begin invoking the words coercive control more and more. So I think part of what happens is when something's new, people have an aversion to it. Add in that we are dealing with patriarchal systems. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh gosh, here she comes again. She's got this word coercive control. She's going to start lassoing around my courtroom. I mean, I could just hear the, and I say this, I say this, and I want to be clear. Like I say that there is either ego, meaning bad ego, by the mm-hmm. way. I'm not mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. about like good, there is either Healthy bad, ego. there is bad ego mm-hmm. or ignorance when people are not willing to engage in shifts and change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we see this all the time in our courthouse, in our courtrooms. So so if we begin to invoke it over and over and over again, there's just going to be a flood of, of them having to acknowledge that this is truly the shift. We have five states now who have, that have codified it as a form mm-hmm. of domestic violence. So, I mean, it's just so freaking hard to believe that a year, two years ago in the state of Connecticut, if you did, if you did not have a physical bruise, then you weren't a domestic violence victim. I mean, that's just so un, unfathomable. Well, and that's what it is for 45 states. Still. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, right. Right. Yes. And so the five states, just so we're clear, right, mm-hmm. are California, Hawaii, Washington, Colorado, and Connecticut. Those are the five states that have codified coercive control, meaning it is defined under the umbrella of domestic violence. Accurate. Absolutely. Yes. And Massachusetts is working vigorously on this right now. So hopefully they're up next. Um, I'm hopeful that South Carolina is, but I mean, I get this is like, so how do we create a, like a soul, like a, a, a team of advocates, a more than a team of advocates, right? Like an army of advocates. Army. Mm-hmm. Right. So this means that for your listeners to reach out to their legislators that they believe might support this kind of legislation and and get grass it's all grassroots this That's is grassroots right. yeah yeah and so really mobilizing people to push for this legislation to occur um it helps if the person that they seek out is a member on the judicial committee because if they're on the judicial committee, then judicial members actually get one law to propose and this oh. could be their law. But if okay. you are, let's just say I'm a legislator and I want this law proposed, but I'm not on the judicial committee. I have to actually try to fight to get it on, like to get it heard right. versus if I'm on the judicial committee, I get one. So, right. okay. So okay. really important, but these are like, so then that is where we begin to, okay, now we have a law. Now, you know, as Alex Kazer so wisely said, when we passed our law here in Connecticut, you can have a law. It doesn't mean anybody's going to follow it. Then you have to start educating about the law. That means we, again, continually talk about how domestic violence is beyond the physical incident model, how it's coercive control that is the foundation, that this encompasses all of these ways that victims are harmed, including possibly physical, but certainly psychological, gaslighting, intimidation, isolation, manipulation, legal abuse, financial abuse, sexual abuse, and use of the children 
as pawns, as mm. weapon, weaponizing the children in this process. So when people say, oh, that's high conflict. <clears throat> oh, that drives me freaking crazy. That is not high conflict. That's one person abusing the other person. That's right. Using the courts. It's, it's right. It's again, all of these things that you're talking about, it's domestic violence by proxy. It's I'm going to use the court system to abuse you. I'm going to use the children to abuse you. I'm going to use money and control over finances to abuse you. It's all part of the part of the power and control. Right. Um, Right. And so, you know, we have talked a little bit and I think, and now I'm like even more fired up every time we talk, I get all fired up. Um, to create like a, like a change.org or a petition, right. That people can more easily sign and that will go straight to their, the legislators on the judicial committee, right. If we can, if we can identify those players in every state and we can just create it so that it's simple, we will come back to, I think this is something that I really want to do. And so I will, we'll, (laughs) we'll keep you posted. Um, but I think that that would be a really important step because, you know, we have to make it easy. Like, right. right. When you, when you tell people like, figure out who your legislators are, who are on the judicial committees, like, it's like, oh, I get it. (laughs) I get it. But everyone knows, I mean, everyone should know who their state reps are, right. And who their senators are. Reach Mm -hmm. out to, I mean, that's like for a small state like Connecticut, it's not a lot of people for California, humongous, but reach out, you know, I mean, Senator Rubio is a person, obviously that's why California has the law passed. So I get that it's cumbersome. I'm not, I'm not denying that, but I think that there's that. And then there's also ratifying the ERA so that we actually have equality. That's my next topic. (laughs) Because again, every time we talk, we get fired up. Um, And this is what, so you and I had a conversation last week where we were like, what is like, what is the core? How do we get underneath and like get to the core of what the problem is? And you in all your genius and wisdom were like, it's the ERA. It's ratifying the ERA because for those who don't know, which you have to know, please, the Equal Rights Amendment, it was brought forth one hundred years ago in 1923 to have equal rights for women. And it has yet to be ratified as part of the constitution, which means that we have no constitutional rights to equality constitutionally as women. And what does that mean, Christine? Why is that such a big deal? Well, I think when we're treated so unfairly in the judicial system and in the criminal justice system, right, we have women who go to jail for extended periods of time for murdering their oppressors. I mean, you cannot make it up yet. Someone can, I mean, again, I hate these are triggering conversations, but a person, a a man could sexually abuse a child and not go away for extended Mm -hmm. periods of time. Yet a woman murders her oppressor and she goes away. It it doesn't make any sense. So there's no equality under the law. And just to be really clear, like in the constitution, it does state, thankfully, people of color, people who are disabled, men, it does not state woman. So that's what I hope your listeners hear. Like, whoa, that's like, like that's how half of the people in the world. <laughs> Come on. Like, that's right? insane. That is insane. And you're right. Like, yes. I mean, ha- ab- absolutely. That we that we have, you know, that we have equality, constitutional equality. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually being played out. But 
if you are a black or brown person who is whose constitutional right to equality is um and safety and all that the constitution provides is if if they're violated they can sue yes we cannot women cannot sue for a violation of their rights yeah. And so this is what there's a woman, um, I won't mention names, but she's talking about doing a hunger strike in California on the family court steps in, in, in the next coming months. And I mean, I think that's a fabulous idea. Like, how do we draw attention to the in, inequity in the family court? How is it that over and over again, a woman tells the court that she is a victim of abuse and she loses custody? Mm-hmm. To the abuser, mm-hmm. how do we have 50-50 legislation being pushed all across the United States? It's a father's rights agenda. The reality is, is that good fathers deserve 50-50 and should have 50-50. But if I am an abuser, what is the best way for me to harm you? Oh, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. I will take 50-50 and I will go for further. So when a woman suggests that she has been abused or that her children have been abused, and you know, Kate, I'm going to get a little, go down a little rabbit hole here, but for years, I worked in child protective services and I was an educator for the Stranger You Know program. It's a program about child sexual abuse that 93% of offenders to our children are known to the family. Less than 3% are arrested, convicted, and imprisoned. And that's because, think about it, every offender gets to sit across the table from his accuser. Are you going to let a seven-year-old sit across the table, meaning at on a stand across from their abuser? That just doesn't happen. So what happens? These cases get, um, the charges get diminished. These people don't have to serve as much time, people always say, mm-hmm. oh, let me look at the child sex registry list in my area so I know how safe I am. Bullshit. Those are the people who have been arrested. What about the people who have never been arrested, who have never been caught, or the people in the family have said, if you say anything against uncle so-and-so, we will never talk to you again. So these are all the realities of victims of of sexual harm. My point is, is that if I am a child perpetrator, the idea ideal person for me to engage in a relationship with is someone who has children or is to have children with someone. So there is this misnomer that people who sexually abuse children um, are, of course, um, people who don't have their own children. That's not true. And so what I'm trying to suggest here is that when a woman says, I'm worried about the safety of my children, or I'm not safe, we are not believing them. And so if we could sue, if we could say, that happened, guess what? My child was harmed, that happened, now I'm taking you to court and I'm suing you. I mean, that's perhaps one small way to make a shift. I don't know. I do know that we need to hold these judges accountable. It's just so effed up. That is part of the reason that it has that it hasn't been ratified, because these lawmakers in the states in which it hasn't been ratified benefit from it not being law, because right. we don't because then we can sue the courts 
they don't want to get sued. Right. Because I think that there is like any court professionals who may be participating in shady work, because we hear about mm-hmm. that a lot, right? And mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting every GAL guard, you know, I'm not suggesting that. You do wonder if it's a machine, because how could this be? Well, it is. Right. How Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And right? so it's a money-making machine, right? There's money right. to be made. And I was just having this conversation with a colleague of mine who's an expert witness. And and she went to court and, and the judge would not hear her testimony because supposedly it wasn't given early enough, but it was. She was told to come to court. So there was this, we're not going to have that course of control testimony today. We'll have to continue this for another day. And she said, maybe I should just pack up and be a GAL. And it's like, you know, where mm. can we make a difference? How? And I again, I go, it goes back to legislation, but also using the legislation, right? It goes back to ratifying the ERA, empowering, empowering victims to have a voice. One of the questions I get asked a lot in my Facebook group my programs, on Instagram, is what do I do with my engagement ring, my wedding ring? I've got all of these beautiful diamonds. I don't know what to do with them. Well, today's sponsor, Worthy, can help you get the most money possible for your jewelry, fast and risk-free. When you partner with Worthy, they do all the work for you, and their competitive auctions get you up to three times what a local jeweler would offer in as little as two weeks. The best part about Worthy is that you are in charge of what happens to your jewelry. You set the reserve price, you approve the winning bid, and then you get paid. And if your item doesn't sell for the price that you want, Worthy sends it back to you at no cost, fully insured. And now you can visit worthy.com DSG and get an extra $100 when your jewelry sells for over $1,500. That's worthy.com DSG. Worthy a better way to cash in on that hidden asset in your jewelry box. Worthy.com slash DSG. What can victims do? I mean, you know, I've said, you know, we have to educate ourselves on, even if it's not the law, right? (laughs) It's like what it should be, what it really is, right? And it's terrible that a victim should have to stand before a judge and try to educate the judge when they're already feeling the way that they are. Um, but how, how do we, how do we, in the face of this, like, how do we work against it? How do we work against the system that is so deeply rigged against us from like, you know, the the roots? Right. Well, I mean, if we pretend that the system is the abuser, Mm -hmm. because the system may in fact, is. right, may in fact be the abuser, right? So mm-hmm. on top, in other words, it's compound abuse, right? So it's not, mm-hmm. right? It's yes. not just the, the primary perpetrator, but it's also the system. If we pretend, let's just pretend, then we strategize differently. So, you know, just like we've learned that with these, like I always say, listen, not all narcissists are course of controllers, but all course of controllers are narcissists. And depending on the level of the pathology, they may do something 
maybe not so harmful, but they may also do very harmful things, right? And again, for your listeners, 99% of victims of domestic violence suffer financial abuse. So that's just a done deal, like mm-hmm. just done, right? right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so how do I strategize when I know I'm going into a court where I, I mean, <laughs> I have to be around the abuser. Oh my gosh, take a have a lorazepam. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously, um, right. I have to, I have to, maybe I don't have an attorney because my attorney wasn't able to support me in the way, because we do hear about people going pro se and actually doing so very well, right? that's right. Mm -hmm. So what is that about? That's about figuring out and strategizing, how do I present my case in a way that I don't raise red flags about me? And so, you know, it's, it's an interesting place to be as a clinician because like I actually end up supporting my clients to to not disclose their pain which is just so sad right. you know right. like you can't be emotive you right. you have to be very succinct and just like this is what i would say is just like when we talked when we learned we learned how to respond to the to the narcissist right we learned to be very disengaged i think um some people call it yellow rock right? Yellow rock Mm -hmm. seems a little Mm -hmm. too nice for me. Maybe there's something between gray rock and yellow rock, but this (laughs) this idea where you just kind of are very clear and succinct in your answers and you repeat the same thing. We don't, we don't elaborate. Now, now as victims, as victims, part of the mind games was that we did elaborate. That we did right. explain over explainers over over and over again. We have to because if you could surely if you could just understand because you say you love me, but yet you're doing this thing that's hurting me. So if you could just understand, so let me try and explain it a different way because clearly if you love me, you would want to hear this. Right. right. <laughs> so change yeah. that if you loved me, and yeah. move it to if you would just protect me, because that's mm. what happens in courts. Is mm. that protective parents will come in and they will try to explain their situation to someone and not someone who loves them, but someone who's supposed to protect them. Yep. And and the reality is they can't do that. Mm -hmm. They have to be so succinct, very clear, come up with one or two things to bring forward and that's it because these judges don't want to hear anymore. They don't care. I was on a podcast um, recently here in Connecticut, and and it's a judge who runs the podcast, the Lisa Wexler Show, and mm-hmm. it's a very small town like podcast. But um, she 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 clearly stated that judges don't care. They don't want to hear it. They don't care about the details. Okay, they don't care about the details, but they do care about facts. They also care about facts as they relate to law, right? Okay. Which is where we have a problem <laughs> to begin with, <laughs> right? So what you're saying is they don't care about the details. They don't want to hear. I, and I do this with my clients all the time where they're like, but he said this or he did this. And I'm like, nobody's going to care about that. Correct. Nobody's going to like, I know that feels egregious to you, but that's not illegal. That doesn't violate any laws. It's and he's an asshole. You're not going to litigate assholery. Um, but what are we going to like? What is he doing that is that, vi- you know, what are the laws that are being violated here? Or what is, um, well, I mean, really, that's all they care about. And how 
Someone said this to me on a podcast episode a couple of years ago, I think, that the other thing is that not only how does it relate to the law, but how does this impact custody or maintenance? Because those are the those are the things that judges are like, they're basically there to rule on custody and and spousal or child support, right? right. <laughs> That's basically it. So if the abuse is something that relates to those two things, then like, okay, right? And and I think as as you're saying, as unemotionally as possible, which is, you know, which really gets us into a bit of a double bind, right? Because, you know, if we're not emotional, Amber heard, mm-hmm. then we're we're cold and unlikable. Right. But if we're emotional, then we're, you know, we're off the hook. We're hysterical. Right. Right. Exactly. And I think, I think you just hit on something else that's important to, to bring up. And that is, so the strategy is not as emotional as maybe we're feeling, even though you have every right to feel those emotions and you should be very upset. But the strategy is to retain that for therapy or loved ones and not in the courtroom. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. No matter what's going on, because the moment that you do actually express that, that I always say that um, the abuser can do 10 wrong things. But when the victim does one wrong thing, that's what everybody remembers. And that's what the the judge will hold on to. That's the sad Mm -hmm. part. Again, that's inequality. That's why we need to have, you know, the ERA passed. Right. But I think it's important to think about we don't go in to the courtroom with exactly what we want. We go into the courtroom with what we think the abuser thinks we want. This is how we strategize. Okay. Say more about that. Right. So, okay. Say more about that. So it's so important to put your, to think like the abuser. So does, I I know this is not an easy, like, um, this is not an easy thing to even reconcile in our heads, but is the abuser really interested in not paying you child support? Is that really what's going on? And so if you know that and you don't need the child support, maybe you really do, but you can figure out a way around the child support, would that change the outcome of custody? Because is he only holding on to custody because he doesn't want to have to pay you child support? Mm, so it's right. about finding a workaround to what he's looking for. I'll, I'll give you a little quick example. So I knew exactly what I wanted out of my house, but I, I knew that if I asked for what I wanted, I would get none of it. Mm. So I wrote a list of what I didn't want in hopes that maybe I would get some of what I wanted, right? That's the strategy around the narcissist, right? The attempt is to control at all costs, Mm-hmm. So how do I make him think? And in the case of the family court, how do I make the judge think they are honored? I mean, it's, it's sorry, we are stroking that ego, good or bad, whether they have a good ego or a bad ego. How do I make it seem that I am going to give you, uh, you do have control and that I as the victim, I don't have any control and I'm fine with that. I'm not going to be upset about that. The reality is behind the scenes, I've got all the control because I'm playing Mm -hmm. them like puppets. 
So we need victims and survivors. And this is so hard when you are suffering complex post-traumatic stress, betrayal Mm -hmm. trauma, you Mm -hmm. have compound trauma. Mm -hmm. There is so much pain. But if you could find somewhere deep inside of you, this strength to be two steps ahead of what they, that abuser wants and be ready to give them what they think they want. And in the meantime, you get what you want. So smart. It's so smart. And it requires having, I think it requires having an attorney who understands all of these machinations, right? And it, and I think it also requires having someone like you or me or somebody who knows who can can help help with that strategy. And maybe it's not an attorney. Sometimes these attorneys are useless, right? And, Absolutely. Right. And so in those cases, is it just you? Which again, mm-hmm. you know, you need an army of support to be able to do that though, for sure. That's right. That's right. And I think, you know, um, I think bro- going pro se is far more, uh, I think it's like more recommended now for victims because attorneys don't have, they don't have the training. If you can't find someone in your area who really has the training or is willing to get the training, I have a client who was in a absolutely horrendous, she's probably still in it. It'll be 10 years at least. Um, He'll drag it out forever. He's a psychopath. But her attorneys went to, took, started taking classes in this stuff so they could better understand how to support her because they were like, whoa. This is definitely outside of our, <laughs> you know, area of expertise, but we want to get this right. That's amazing. That oh, is great. such a great story. I love that. Yes. And, and so, yeah, the point is, is that they do need to be educated. Sometimes they're unwilling to be educated because, again, we're talking right. about patriarchal norms, right? Where people really don't see or believe witness uh, right. victims and survivors. But mm-hmm. I also think it's important, like, so I think... Oftentimes what I've seen with people who are hiring attorneys is they have an expectation that the attorney is going to do the job and do it right. And the reality is that's not true. Every attorney has about 50 more cases than they should on their caseload. Every single attorney. They open your file 10 minutes before they get on a call with you. That's when they open it up. They don't know the details of your case. The best cases, and I just, I have a client just recently who sadly lost her case, but she did all of the work and she still lost. But the point is, is that the only way that her attorney would have been even able to represent her in the correct way was if the client had actually spoon fed her every single aspect of the court case. So don't expect your attorney to know right. what to do. Yep. I, I always have to remind my clients, your attorney works for you. We're, I say it all the time. They work for you. Fire your attorney. If they're not working for you, fire them. <sighs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes if you go with the big firm, with the fancy name, sometimes they might have a little bit more of a machine behind them to, to support you. But it was a small boutique firm that my client was with who was who was genuinely genuinely cared about her and genuinely wanted to expand their knowledge to be able to support her mm-hmm. so it's not always the best to go with the you know the biggest fanciest mm-hmm. law firm 
But do your due diligence, right? Like interview people and ask them, what is your experience with this? And going up against a system where this is not, what's not part of the system. Sure. And I think it's important to point out that sometimes it's when the divorce proceedings start that the the light bulb goes off for victims. Oftentimes, you know, you hire an attorney, you think, you know, you just want to fair attorney, a, a decent attorney, you're not thinking, oh, I need someone who specializes in domestic violence or narcissism. You're not thinking like that until you're in the middle of it and you're realizing, oh my gosh, there's something really wrong here. And by the way, my attorney doesn't get it, which is really very stressful and overwhelming. Yes, it is. And, 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 and because very often You'll have abusers who are compliant and everything's fine and we're going to be amicable and let's go to mediate, let's mediate, right? So that they can try and control it. And then they drop the bombs on you. Then their control starts to come out even more. Right, right. So I think that that's an important, like, that's key is to, like, Attorneys need to understand that there is a huge difference between victims and perpetrators. And it's not that hard to figure out once you've got your little <laughs> antenna up. I mean, come on, how hard right. is this? I mean, a, a victim is going to be really upset and sad about the losses that are occurring authentically. So we should be attuned to other people and be able to figure out if that's real or not, or are they on stage? You know, right. and, and victims are not going to be looking for revenge. Um, they may want what's fairly theirs, but they're not going to be right. looking for revenge. And so when we all of a sudden, you know, you're going to court and then all of a sudden the the perpetrator's like, oh yeah, no, I I think I want 50-50 now. Like, really, where's that coming from? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Is this the father? Mm-hmm. Is this the father who brought the children to every single activity when they were little and all the nurses, all the doctor's appointments and all the school events? Oh, is this the father who showed up? periodically because he was busy working. What father are we talking about? Because if this father has not historically been engaged in his children's welfare, then why are we to assume that right now this is authentic? Let's question that for a moment, please. Come on. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, you know, 50-50 is the the norm, right? 50-50 equal shared parenting, whatever you want to call it right? That is what courts prefer, but it's not what most children, you know, if we also look at like, what are the children used to, especially with a stay-at-home mom, you know, why, why 50-50? Father's rights. Yeah. (laughs) Father, father's rights movement. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So anytime a guy shows up to be a good dad, we have the freaking Macy's parade coming down the street. I mean, that's the, that's the Mm -hmm. reality because, Mm -hmm. but when a mom shows up to do that, that's the norm. You know, we just kind of, yeah. So that's right. Right. When guys do the right thing, it's celebrated. It's like, Oh my God, he's such a good dad. When women do the right thing, it's expected. And that's, yeah. And what's, you know, what's really frustrating about 50-52 and, you know, equal equal shared parenting is that the parenting time may be equal, but the parenting is not. We're still doing all the work. We're still making all the appointments and the doctor's appointments and taking them to the appointments. And we're still, you know, even those of us who run our own businesses, who work just as much, you know, work full time, don't, right? We are still managing 
all of it yeah. all the time. Yeah. And we don't, it's, so we call it like, um, it's called the double day in sociology and mm-hmm. this idea that women, uh, historically when women started going back to work, right. It was yes, that right. they had a double day and yeah, it's and, the second shift. Right. Yeah, exa- right, right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But and, and here's yeah. the thing. I mean, you're expressing that and I hear you, but we don't even mind by the way, like we want to be that we want to be that person in our children's lives. We love that, that, you know, I mean, it'd be great to have a little help sometimes. Sure. But right. Well, and I think it's the expectation Mm. that we'll just do it. Right. I mean, there are plenty of things that listen, if my ex was like, Oh, you know what? Don't worry about, I got this. Like, do you need like, or, you know, not even do I need, because that's, that's assuming I'm the owner of it. Mm -hmm. Right. But, um, hey, I made an appointment for the dentist or, hey, um, you know, I, I, and it's got, you know, this going on that I, like, I would be, I'd be so thrilled. I'd be fucking thrilled. Mm-hmm. Right. And just to be clear, the double shift and the double day that you're talking about, um, the second shift is refers to the fact that working women will, they'll go to work all day and then come home and work all night, like a second shift, the, because they're responsible for all of the domestic labor, right? When men will come home and they'll be like, whew, I worked hard and I got to, you know, put my feet up and not do anything. And then we've also worked hard, but we're also the ones primarily responsible for shopping, for cooking, for cleaning, for giving the kids the baths, for doing homework, all of that. Right. Right. And I think thankfully that's shifting a little bit, but the mm-hmm. other, but the mm-hmm. other side to that is that even moms who stay home, that yeah. there is this belief that they're not working. And, and what do you do all day? <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, what I would do to go to work on some of those days, <laughs> you know, right? Absolutely. So, um, so just a lack of appreciation and a lack of, e- well, it's, it's, it's inequality. That's what it really comes back, down to. It's, it's back, back to, to the ERA, folks. Mm-hmm. It's back to, and I think that the ERA is, it's literal, it's legal you know, it impacts civil law, all of those things. It's also really symbolic, right? Because we know we live in a patriarchy, right? We always talk about we live in a patriarchy. Like it's it's a constitutional patriarchy, like it's down to the constitution. And if it were in the constitution that we were actually equal under the law, there would be a different expectation. It would it would seep into the culture differently, I believe. One would hope. One would hope. One would hope. It would it would give us <laughs> leverage, if nothing else. And mm-hmm. and that's just, you know, we need women to have the ability to fight for their rights to have their children. I mean, you know, their rights to be protected from domestic violence. I mean, this it's I, I, there's no words. It's so unbelievable. And, yeah. um, and the fact that I, you know, that there's not a huge, and I, I'm grateful for all of the men and non-binary individuals who are taking up this torch. I am so grateful for that, but I just don't understand how it's not a huge, huge movement. What else would we need to make it a huge movement? Well, you and I are going to work on that. Kate Anthony. The- <laughs> Yeah, listen, I'm getting I'm getting fired up about this now. I've gotten I'm talking to all the, the ERA people about this now because I'm like, wait, Yay. what? Yay. Wait, what? 
(laughs) (laughs) They're going to be on the podcast. I really think, yeah. I mean, 2023, first of all, because it's the hundredth anniversary. um, Of not being signed. (laughs) Of not being signed. I mean, it's, I, 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 yeah, it's, it's coming y'all. I'm going to be talking about this a lot more because give me a fucking break. Dr. C, my dear friend. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for having this conversation. And as always, where can people find you so they can follow along the really important work that you're doing? Yeah, I'm on Instagram, um, Dr. Cochiola, Coercive Control, and also on Twitter, Coercive Control. And I have a website they can check out if they'd like to. So yeah. And what's the website? Uh, It's Coercive Control Consulting. All things Coercive Control. Mm, Trying to stop it. Thanks, love. Thank you so much for coming on and just spitballing a fired up conversation with me. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for all the great things you do. You're amazing. I adore you. You are amazing. You're you're an advocate on um, rollerblades, I think. Yeah, I see you in California (laughs) on the rollerblades. Yeah. (laughs) it's not true y'all I fall flat on my face (laughs) but I love that you see that in your mind's eye I do (laughs) oh my god thank you so much Christine thank you thanks for tuning in to another episode of the divorce survival guide podcast if you like what you hear head on over to apple podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at The Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.